Great to see all of you today as we continue in our Deconstructing Together series. Over the course of this series, we are asking some of the deepest, most most difficult to answer, I think sometimes for people, uh, questions as they relate to our Christian faith. Uh, Last week, we talked about politics, hypocrites, and moral failures inside the church. So if you missed that one, that sounds fun, right? Uh, You can catch it online. Next week, we're going to talk about Jesus being the only way. The last week of the series, we're going to talk about uh, suffering and how a good God could allow pain and suffering. Uh, But today, we get to talk about one of my favorite subjects, and we're going to talk about the Bible. Uh, specifically, we're going to talk about the question that we get asked regularly and that a lot of people struggle with when it comes to reading or applying the Bible to their own life because they have this question in the back of their mind. And the question is simply this, how can I be expected to base my life on the Bible when Christians don't all agree on what it says and means? This is interesting for me because I've always looked at the Bible as a gift, and I think that it's given to us to help us understand how to do life in relationship with God and how to live in his kingdom here uh, in this side of eternity as well. Um, But I have come to understand that there is an increasingly large number of people who would say the more they read the Bible, the more they are filled with questions rather than the more that their questions are answered. And so that leaves them in a tricky place where they're left to wonder, how could anybody expect me to base my life on the Bible when I look around at all these different Christians and they don't even agree on what it says or really at least what it means? And so this is the question that we want to tackle together today. Uh, One of the things that we're trying to do in this series is we're trying to uh, acknowledge where these questions are coming from or why they matter so much. And so the last thing that we would ever do would be like, Say, hey, just ignore that question. Just, you know, just sweep it under the rug and move on. So if you're somebody who is, is like feeling like, is it just me or do Christians, are they not even on the same page when it comes to what the Bible says and means? Let me build the case for you for a moment. According to a recent survey or a recent endeavor by an organization known as the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, they, went, they set out to count every single Christian denomination around the world. And just for a second, think to yourself, how many denominations do you think there are within Christendom? How many Christian denominations do you think there are? According to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, the answer that they came up with was that there are over 45,000 Christian denominations around the world today. 45,000 groups that have organized around their specific understanding of something in the Bible or how to apply it to their life. Just in the United States alone, we have over 200 formally organized, legally recognized Protestant denominations. 200 just in the U.S. alone, which Makes sense. There's about 200 countries. If all 200 countries have 200 denominations, that's 40,000. Throw in a few extra, you get to 45,000. But it does make you wonder, man, why is that? And this is one of the things that I would love to ask God. Like when I get to heaven someday, if he has a drop box where we get to ask questions and like leave a note that he'll answer for everybody, this is one of the questions I want to ask him. I would write, God, if you gave us all the same spirit, Why didn't the Spirit guide us all to the same understanding of the Bible? Sincerely, John McNary, the one in Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. (laughs) 
But think about it. Like, if we all have the same spirit, the same Holy Spirit that God has placed his spirit in us, and if part of the, the role of the Holy Spirit is to help us understand and hear from God through Scripture, why doesn't that same Holy Spirit that we all have lead us to the same conclusions if we're all seeking his voice when it comes to reading and applying the Bible? I don't know. I cannot answer that for you today. This is on my list of things to ask God when I meet him face to face. I don't know. And because I don't think any of us are going to get a, a firm answer to that question on this side of eternity, here's what I hope to do with you this morning. I've got two goals for our time together, and I am going to throw a lot at you. But here's where I want to go with our two goals for today. My number one goal for today is I hope to explain why the Bible gets interpreted in different ways. Like, why is that? Right? If there's 45,000 different denominations, how did we get there? Why are there so many denominations? Why does the Bible get interpreted in different ways? And then I want to close by trying to explain why I believe that's okay. All right? As I said, I'm going to throw a lot at you. Um, this may be one where you take notes or you go back and listen to it again later. This will be one where I will probably challenge what you have uh, always assumed to be true about the Bible. This will be one where I may even challenge what you were taught by another church about the Bible. But remember, our word for the year is even more. And so we're going to allow God to stretch us even more, recognizing that you got to hear me out. You got to hear the whole thing. And we can have conversations and dialogue, and we could even disagree after the fact. All right. But just I want you to buckle up because I'm serious. I'm going to say some stuff that some of you are going to love and some of you are going to be like, I don't know if my pastor even believes in Jesus. Like, he, is he even a believer? So here we go. All right. Number one goal for the day, why does the Bible get interpreted in different ways? First reason it gets interpreted differently by different people is because the Bible is not laid out like a textbook. Sometimes I wish that it was, but the Bible is not laid out like a systematic theology textbook where it is broken up by subject and it is organized neatly for us to understand all of the different doctrines that we need to understand. The Bible's not laid out that way. As Jake said in the intro video, many of you may have grown up hearing that the Bible is an acronym for basic instructions before leaving earth. I think that's cute. I think that's a terrible way to look at the Bible. Uh, the Bible does not read like an instruction manual. It was not intended to. The Bible was not even written as a single book. It does not read linearly like a progression, like that's just a straight line from here to there. And so I want to give you a little bit of, of just basic information about the Bible before we really dig into the meat of today. And uh, this is what you should know about the biblical collection, because it's really a library. The, the Bible that you have in your homes is a library made up of 66 different books. 39 of them are the Jewish Bible. 39 of them are what we call the Old Testament, but really that's just the Jewish Bible. 27 of them make up the New Testament, which would be the Christian scriptures. The Bible, or the 66 books that make up the Bible, were written over a period of over 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different languages on three different continents. Again, this is why it does not read like a systematic theology textbook, because you're actually reading a library that is spread out over 1,500 years. 
even within both the Old and New Testament, you get different genres of literature. So for example, in the Old Testament, we find at least these six genres of literature. We find law, we find narrative, which is kind of like story. We find poetry and songs. We find wisdom. We find prophecy and we find apocalyptic literature. As you can imagine, the way that you read and apply different genres is, is really radically different. It's really important. As you can imagine, if you read wisdom literature, maybe it's like some of the axioms in the book of Proverbs, you know, the borrower is slave to the lender, right? That's going to apply to our lives very differently than apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature like parts of the book of Daniel, then on top of that, when it comes to the Old Testament, you have a difference of opinion around how much or which sections of the Old Testament still apply to Christians today. Certainly some parts are very applicable. You take like the Psalms, for example, which is filled with journal entries and, and songs of praise and worship and lament and, and crying out to God. Like that applies so clearly to our lives today because we can relate so easily to it. But then you take the Old Testament law which was the law that God gave to Moses to give to the nation of Israel to govern a new country of people after he led them out of Egypt 3,500 years ago. And you have people suddenly trying to apply that to our lives as Christians today. I'll give you a perfect example of this from my own life. Maybe you heard this like I heard this growing up. But when I was a junior in high school, I decided I wanted to get a tattoo. Now, uh, anybody like me, ever hear that Christians should not get tattoos because God tells us not to get tattoos in the Bible? Yeah, some of you? Okay, yeah. So I grew up in a Christian home. I knew my parents were like strong believers. They loved the Bible. Um, That's one of the gifts they gave me. But I went to my mom when I was a junior in high school, and I said, Mom, I'd love to get a tattoo. She immediately said, John, no, the Bible tells us that Christians should not get tattoos. Well, I was prepared for this. I was a thinking teenager. And so I said, mom, that's great. Let's get, let's get a Bible out. Let's look at this together. I said, the verse that you're referencing is a commandment that God gave to Moses to give to the Israelites 3,500 years ago as part of the Jewish law for the Jewish people. The verse that you're referencing is Leviticus 19:28, which says this, do not put tattoo marks on yourselves. I am the Lord. It's like, seems pretty straightforward, mom. But I said, well, let's go back. What's the verse before this? Oh, that's another command. What's the command right before this? Well, verse 27 says, do not cut the hair at the sides of your head or clip off the edges of your beard. Then I looked at my dad. I was like, don't you prefer dad to be clean shaven? Because he shaves. Yeah, yeah. And he's got short hair. He clips the edges of his hair. And then I said, why don't we go back a few more commandments before this one and look at Leviticus 19.19, which says, this is a commandment God gave us, do not wear clothing woven of two kinds of material. So mom, don't you love a nice cotton poly blend? You know, (laughs) weren't you just telling me about this shirt that you love that was cotton, but it had some elastane in it. It gave a little stretch, you know? And then I pointed out, In the New Testament, how many times Jesus said he had come to fulfill the Old Testament law, and how many places in the New Testament epistles we were told that Jesus did fulfill the Old Testament law, and how we under Jesus are no longer under the Old Testament Jewish law. 
I looked at passages like Romans 13, 8, which says, let no debt remain outstanding among you except the continuing debt to love one another. Check this out. Because whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. You fulfill the law when you love other people. So I said, Mom, um, do you think that you get to just pick and choose some of the Old Testament laws? And she said, well, no, but isn't it true that some of the Old Testament laws are civil and some are ceremonial and some are moral? And wouldn't the moral laws still apply to us because God's never changing and therefore what's moral or sinful would never change either? And I said, that's an interesting thought. The problem with it is that nothing in the law makes that distinction. That God, when God gave the law to the Israelites, to the Jewish people, he never said, oh, these are moral things, and these are civil things, and these are ceremonial things. So I said, who gets to decide whether something is moral or civil or ceremonial? Do we just leave that up to everybody for themselves to decide? I said, I think I'd rather put my camp in Jesus's camp where he said, I've fulfilled the law. The law that you need to follow is the law to love one another. And so my mom said, okay. And the next Sunday, my dad took me to get my first and only tattoo, <laughs> which I will say is uh, the weekend I'm telling you this, my own teenage son is off at the 608 student ministry retreat, and he's not here to hear that story. So um, <laughs> I'm in the clear. So if we could just keep that between us and nobody tell my son. Uh, all right. Um, uh, also, I got a, my tattoos about my faith. So it, it is, it's not like I have a dragon on my arm or something. It's, it's tied to my faith. Um, jump to the New Testament. New Testament is broken into four sections. First of all, the Gospels, which tell the story of Jesus. There are four of those because it's probably the most important part of the Bible, right? Uh, it's Jesus's life, ministry, death, burial, and resurrection. So we get four Gospels that all document the same thing. Then you get the book of Acts, which tells us what the apostles did in the 30 years following Jesus's resurrection. Then you get a section called the epistles. We'll come back to this, but the epistles were the letters that the apostles wrote to various individuals or groups, helping them apply the law of Christ, the law to love one another into their unique situation. Then Revelation John's uh, visions regarding, regarding the second coming of Jesus in the end times. Now, as it relates to our question today, why does the New Testament, why does the Bible get interpreted differently by different people? We've got to spend some time in the epistles because in the 21 letters that we call epistles, this is where the vast majority of the debate comes in. And the reason that these letters get so debated is because whenever you read the epistles, you have to ask yourself this question. What was intended only for the original recipients based on their unique situation? And what was intended for all believers in all places for all times? This is what I call the contextual versus continual debate. If something was contextual, that means that it's, it was written only for the original recipients. That only applies to them. You cannot take it and apply it to us today, 2,000 years later on the other side of the world. But if something was continual, you can. If it was continual, it applies equally to every follower of Jesus in every context for the rest of human history. 
So you have to understand when you're reading the epistles, is this contextual or continual? There are about 2.5 billion Christians in the world today. And as you can imagine, anytime you have 2.5 billion people with different perspectives and life experiences, they're going to read the New Testament epistles and they're going to land in different places. On one end of the spectrum, you get people who think that the New Testament epistles do not apply to us at all, that they were all originally written to specific individuals or groups, so it would be wrong to apply any of it to us today. I disagree with that camp. At the other end of the spectrum, you get people who take everything they would say, I wouldn't, but they would say they take everything literally. They're people who champion the phrase, if the Bible says it, that settles it. And they would say, if it is in black and white in the New Testament, it applies to us today exactly like it applies to the people who are the original recipients. Now, here's where it gets fun. I'm going to show you that even the most diehard, like the Bible says it, that settles it. If it was written in black and white in the New Testament, it applies to me. Even the most adamant people that it still all applies to me, they do not actually believe it all applies to me, okay? They don't believe that. And to prove it, I want us to play a little game, a game called contextual versus continual. Here's the deal. I'm gonna show you a, a commandment from the New Testament epistles. And the question I want you to consider is, was that commandment contextual, meaning it was really only intended for the original recipients, or was it continual, where it applies to all believers in all contexts for all times, okay? Contextual or continual. First up, we get a commandment from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 3, which says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Is this contextual or continual? Yeah, it's continual. I think every Christian in every context for the rest of, of, rest of human history should do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. How about this, this statement in Colossians 4? We read at the end of Colossians, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. I am sending him to you. He is coming to you with Onesimus. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Was this contextual or continual? It's contextual. Does anybody in the room actually think that Onesimus and Tychicus are going to show up later to tell us what's going on with Paul and his cronies today? No, right? This, is, this was not continual. Like this was Paul writing to his friends and telling them like, hey, I'm going to send Onesimus. I'm going to send Tychicus. Like they're going to come. They're going to tell you some stuff. They're going to catch you up to speed. That's great. It's fun to read that and to know Tychicus and Onesimus gave them an update. That has nothing to do with us today. Like nobody's coming. Okay. Nobody's coming. Uh, Here's one. Here's a command we are giving, given in the New Testament epistles five different times. Five books of the Bible tell Christians to do this commandment. Is this contextual or continual? 2 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Greet one another with a holy kiss. Romans 16, 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Thessalonians, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. And Peter changed it up a little bit when he gave this command. He wrote, greet one another with the kiss of love. Was this contextual 
or continual? Let me ask you this way. Was I standing by the front doors kissing you when you walked in today? Listen, I love all of you guys. I love all you people, right? But a handshake's good for me, right? Maybe a hug if we're close, maybe a fist bump, right? Like, but I'm not kissing you. But that's okay, even though five times in the New Testament we are told this commandment, kiss one another. What? What do you do with that? Well, you go, this was a very different time and place. Culture was extremely different. It does not apply the way that it was written on the page in black and white. Kiss one another with the kiss of love does not apply to us. You could take it and extrapolate it and say, well, maybe we should greet one another warmly. I can go there with you, 100%. But to say the Bible says it, that settles it, we should all be kissing each other every time we see one another. But we all universally understand everything in the New Testament commandments were not continual. There's a lot that was contextual. How about Colossians 4, 1, or uh, Colossians 3.12, which says, Therefore, as God's chosen people who are holy and dearly loved, you should clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Contextual or continual? Continual, yeah. Very obvious this one's continual. Supplies to all believers in all contexts for all times. Let me take it to an uncomfortable level, right? Because we're not pulling any punches in this series. How about Colossians 4.1? Colossians 4.1 was written to some people who lived in the city of Colossae in the first century, and Paul wrote to the people who owned slaves and said, slave masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair. You don't have to answer it loud, but do you think this was contextual or continual? This was contextual. Paul was writing to a different group of people who lived in a different world. They lived in a world with a very different form of slavery than what you and I think of when we think of the slavery that existed in our country just 150 years ago. When the apostle Paul wrote to them and said, said, give them what is right and fair, he did not He was not trying to give God's endorsement for slavery to all people groups for all time. He was writing to a specific context, and he was trying to answer for them how to apply the law of love in their world in a way that was possible. But unfortunately, American slaveholders in the deep south for 250 years used this verse and says, the Bible says it, that settles it. So all I need to do is give my slaves what is right and fair. And since I own them, I'll give them enough food and water to keep them alive and working for me. But that's right and that's fair. That's all I have to do. The Bible does not tell me I need to emancipate my slaves. But do you think if the Apostle Paul was writing a letter based on the law of Christ to the American slaveholders in the deep south in the 17 and 1800s, do you think that this is what he would have said to them? No. Are you kidding me? He would have said, emancipate your slaves. It's a different form of slavery. It's a different world today. Get rid of your slaves, he would have said. Are you kidding me? How do you justify that with the law of Christ? And there are other passages like this as well. Passages like the the couple passages that speak to a woman's place in church. 
Like in 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and he literally said, when women come to church, they, re- they need to stay silent when they're at church. If they, if they have a question, they can, they can open their mouths and ask their question once they get home, but they can't ask any questions when they're in church. Is that contextual or continual? Well, there are denominations today built on this that would say, well, you know, the Bible says it. So I guess that settles it. But what do we know about the context? We know that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians was writing about orderly worship. Apparently, their worship services had gotten a little out of control. They had gotten wild. They were deeply unorganized. And so so they were reaching out to Paul. They're like, what do we do, man? These things are a mess. It's a train wreck every time the believers get together to worship God. And we've got this going on and that going on and that going on. And one of the things that's going on is we've got this group of uneducated women who have placed their faith in Jesus, but they don't understand anything. And so the whole time we end up just answering their questions. And so in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul addresses a bunch of those questions they were asking. He was, he was addressing other things about their worship gatherings as well. And one of the things he said about their worship gatherings was, listen, if women have questions, let them ask their husbands when they get home. But don't let that interrupt the services. Services should be organized. They should be, they should be clear. They should be well done. Excellence honors God and inspires people. So like, let's not derail the whole thing to make it a Q&A session every time you gather as a church. But that was never intended to be applicable for every Christian gathering in every context for the rest of human history. So part of the challenge and part of the reason that that Christians disagree on what the Bible means is because there's a difference of opinion on some of these issues around what was contextual and what was continual. Everybody agrees some of it was contextual, but where you draw the line is is a matter of opinion. And there are differences of opinion. Third reason that the Bible gets interpreted differently by different people is because of what I would call the challenge with inerrancy. The doctrine of inerrancy says that the scriptures are without error in the original manuscripts. So the doctrine of inerrancy would say that in the original manuscripts, like when like when Matthew wrote the, the Gospel of Matthew, that original manuscript did not have any errors in it in any way, shape, or for, form. And that's true for all 66 of the books that have made it into the biblical canon. That's the doctrine of inerrancy. The reason that this becomes a, a conversation for us today is because there are a number of people who are asking the question, if I do not believe in the doctrine of inerrancy, if I cannot agree that the entire thing, like, you know, maybe, maybe when Noah built the ark and all the animals came and they walked up onto the boat by themselves politely two by two, and then they floated around for 40 days and 40 nights until the waters receded, and then the dove brought back a leaf and said, it's okay, Noah, and then he let the animals out. If I can't believe that, does that mean I can't be a Christian? That's the question people are asking. So let me just give you some very straightforward information on the doctrine of inerrancy. I've researched this so hard. Look me up. Check me if you question any of this. Number one, nowhere in Scripture do any of the biblical authors claim that the Scriptures are inerrant. 
Nothing in Scripture would say everything in here is inerrant. Number two, the Jewish people have never held a doctrine of inerrancy for their scriptures. It's not a doctrine that the Jewish people would hold to. The earliest Christian creeds do not claim that the Bible was inerrant. The earliest Christian creeds, maybe you've heard of things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. It's interesting that those creeds do not claim the Bible to be inerrant. That was not an early founding Christian doctrine. Number four, the doctrine of inerrancy developed after the Protestant Reformation. We know that this doctrine and this debate around inerrancy is really only in the last 200 years. Christians did a perfectly fine job following Jesus and reading the Bible without the doctrine of inerrancy for about 1,700 years. My question would be, my pushback would be, if number five, if the Bible is not inerrant, how do you trust any of it? If the Bible's not inerrant, how do you draw the line on what you think is inerrant and what you think is errant? I don't know. I don't know how to answer that for you. Some people would say the Bible is not inerrant, but they would use the word infallible. They would say the Bible is infallible. So you got to understand the difference of in, in these words. Inerrant means the original manuscripts, there is no error in any way, shape, or form. The doctrine of infallibility would, would say, I don't know if I can affirm inerrancy, but I do believe that the scriptures will not fail in anything they are trying to do or in anything that God is trying to teach us about life and him and, and eternity and salvation. So they would say it might have some errors if you do a literal reading of some of the things like in the Old Testament or creation, but they would say it's not fallible. There are no, there are no failures in what it's trying to do. As a result, number six, today, the vast majority of churches would affirm the inerrancy of Scripture. I think it's important to know, including Heartland. If you go onto our website, you click on what do we believe here at Heartland, we would affirm the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility. The problem around the doctrine of inerrancy is number seven. This is where the, this really probably is most important to understand. Inerrancy has made it wrong to question the literal face value reading of any biblical text. This is why this matters so much is because upholding the, the doctrine of inerrancy has made people, some people at least, feel like it is wrong to question the literal face value reading of scripture. And the reason that that's a problem is because that is not the way that Jesus and Jesus taught his disciples to handle scripture. The Jewish approach to scripture could be summarized as question, dialogue, debate, and answer. This is how the Jews handle the scriptures. They question them. They wrestle with them. They dialogue about them. They debate them. They fight over how they should be applied or not applied to their lives today. And then they arrive at their answers. And many times they arrive at a difference of opinion. This is how we see Jesus engaged with the scriptures. In Luke chapter 2, let me read you this extended passage. In Luke 2, we read, every year Jesus's parents went up to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. 
Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. And then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and at his answers. So apparently, not only was Jesus asking questions, it wasn't just like, hey, I don't understand this part of scripture. Can you help me understand it? He was asking them questions. Like they were, they were going back and forth. They were dialoguing. They were debating. And they were asking questions of the 12-year-old boy, Jesus. And they were amazed at his answers. They were amazed at his perspective on the scriptures. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. So Jewish people then and still today are comfortable wrestling with the text. The word Israel literally means wrestling with God. And God invited the Jewish people. I think he invites us to wrestle with him and to wrestle with the text that he has given to us. And so you jump from that, from there to Christianity. And I love what one Christian scholar wrote. One Christian scholar said this about our approach to, to scripture. He said, Christianity has too often prioritized conformity over unity. But Jesus didn't call us to conformity. He called us to unity. I love that. We can disagree about things in scripture but Jesus called us to stay united as one despite our differences of opinion, just like the Jews had differences of opinion. It's interesting. A Jewish rabbi's interpretation of how to live according to Torah was, it became known as his yoke. Well, you might remember Jesus talking about his yoke one time, his interpretation of how to live out the scriptures. This is what he said in Matthew. He said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We're so many people in Jesus's day. We're trying to live under the yoke of their Jewish rabbis under the yoke of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the different teachers of religious law. Jesus looked at them and he saw that the, that the religious leaders were, were putting a yoke on the people that weighed them down, that made them feel burdened by the scriptures. And Jesus said, you guys have it all wrong. He said the scriptures should not be a burden. They should be life-giving. So he said, come to me and take my yoke upon you. Take my interpretation of how to live under the scriptures upon you. My yoke is light and easy, and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus's approach to scripture. So is it true that Christians debate how to interpret the Bible? Yes, it is. I would be quick to argue that it's okay. And here's why. Number one, I think it's okay that the Bible gets interpreted differently by different people because we know that the biblical texts that we have today are accurate copies of what was originally written. This leads us to something that the historians today call the manuscript test. 
The manuscript test simply says that whenever we look at a document today, that's an ancient document from thousands of years ago, when we look at an ancient document, we want to know how, how soon after the original manuscript was written were, were, was our copy written, and how many copies do we have. And the more copies we have, and the shorter the time period that went between when the original manuscript was written and our copy was written, the better. So that becomes more trustworthy. Let me give you some examples from history. First one is Tacitus. Uh, we have 31 copies of Tacitus' work, and there was about 1,000 years between when Tacitus wrote the original manuscript and our oldest copy. Plato had various works. We have about 210 of Plato's works that come from about 1,300 years between the original and the manuscript, yeah, the original manuscript and our copies of it. Um, nobody questions the validity of those copies. Uh, Livy wrote the Roman history. Uh, we have 20 copies that come from about 850 years after he wrote the original manuscript. But the gold standard of ancient documents by far, the gold standard is Homer's Iliad. And that was written, uh, or our oldest copies of the manuscript come about 500 years after he wrote the Iliad, but we have 1,700 copies of it that all affirm the Iliad that we have today is exactly the Iliad that Homer wrote all those years ago. That's the gold standard. The New Testament, though, check this out. The New Testament, we have over 24,000 copies of the manuscript or pieces of the manuscripts written within 50 years of the original. There is no doubt in any historian's mind that the texts that we read today are exactly what the original authors wrote down 2,000 years ago. Now, they might not believe them. They might say, listen, I don't believe what this person is saying about Jesus. I did, the secular historian might say, I don't believe that he actually came back to life after being crucified by the Roman Empire. I don't believe it, but they would affirm the text that you and I read is exactly what they wrote down 2,000 years ago. The second reason I think it's okay that the Bible gets interpretedly different by, differently by different people today is because all of the core Christian doctrines are fully agreed upon. Is it true that there's some debate with some things in the Bible among Christians today? Yeah, it is. There are 2.5 billion Christians in the world today. I don't think there's hardly anything you could get 2.5 billion people to agree on when it comes to any part of life, really. And yet, among the 2.5 billion Christians in the world today, there is unanimous agreement around all of the core doctrines of the Christian faith. 2.5 billion people are on the exact same page with what the Bible says and what the Bible means when it comes to things like the doctrine of God the Father, of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, of the sinfulness of all people, and salvation by grace through faith alone, not by works so that no one can boast. We're all on the same page whenever it comes to anything that really matters for our life and our ministries today. There are over 30,000 verses in the Bible, and over 95% of them are unanimously agreed upon. It is less than 5% that there is any difference of opinion on how it gets applied to our life in our world today. Less than 5% of the Bible. 
There's a lot in there. But less than 5% of it gets debated or wrestled with at all. I think God would love for us to wrestle with more of it. But 95% of it, everybody agrees. We are on the same page with that. So is it okay that a few parts of it get debated and wrestled with? Yeah, I think it's okay. The third and final reason that I think it's okay that the Bible gets interpreted different, differently by different people is because all of the books of the Bible tell a single unified story. 66 different books, 40 different authors writing in three different languages on three different continents over a period of 1,500 years, but it all tells the same story and it all points to the same thing and that thing is Jesus. One of the most incredible things about the Bible is that among the 66 books that were written over 1,500 years, there are over 66,000 cross-references within the Bible alone. Over 66,000 times, one author of a book in the Bible references something from another of the 66 books in the Bible. How is that possible? How is it possible that 66 different books would reference each other sometimes in the future? I think it's a miracle. I think it's because while there were 40 different authors, ultimately, I think there was really just one author. I think it was God. I think God was behind all of it. And so a 1,500-year time period wasn't a big gap for God to fill in. 66,000 cross-references is a reflection of the miracle that we call the Bible. A couple of years ago, two friends, one a pastor, the other a professor at Carnegie Mellon, set out to graphically illustrate the 66,000 cross-references in the Bible. The first time I saw this image, it took my breath away, and I want to show it to you right now. This is the image that they came up with. This is all 66,000 cross-references. Across the bottom, you have the different books of the Bible alternating in light gray and dark gray. The lines that drop down are the different chapters of the books of the Bible. The longest one there in the very middle, that's Psalm 119. That's the longest chapter in the Bible by far. Lighter colors are, are references that are further apart. Darker colors are references that are closer together. But look at this. Some of these come from Genesis on the far left all the way to Revelation on the right. How is it possible that Moses, who's credited with writing the book of Genesis, how is it possible that Moses could reference something that wouldn't actually be written down for 1,500 years by John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation? It's only possible because God was breathing it all out, because God was behind it all, and because it all tells the same story. Ultimately, all the books of the Bible are part of the meta-narrative of the Bible. The meta-narrative is the overarching story of Scripture, and it goes creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, fall, redemption through Jesus's atoning death on the cross and his resurrection, and then restoration. That's the story that the scriptures tell. That's the story that we get to read about. That's the story that we get to be a part of. 
And it culminates with Revelation 21, where God promises, behold, I am making all things new. One day, everything will be fully and finally restored. That's the story of scripture. It's the story of God's limitless love for us, for humanity, for the people that he created and that he longs for a relationship with. It's the story of how even though we've all walked away, God made a way for us to be redeemed and restored back into life in his kingdom. It's the, it's the, the thing that tells us about, about creation and about the fall. The Bible ultimately points us to the one that it was all about. It's the one that points us about the one who was to come, the one who did come, the one who laid down his life only to have it raised back to life. It's the book that tells us about how we find forgiveness in him and where we find our life and our hope and our future, about why he is the one that we follow, about why he is the one that becomes the foundation for our lives today. Listen, our hope is not anchored to unanimous agreement about the finer points of the Bible. Our hope is anchored to Jesus. The foundation for our lives today is not unanimous agreement about the finer points of the Bible. The foundation for our lives is the person of Jesus. He is the one that we build our lives on. He is the one that we look to. He is the one that we worship. We do not worship the Bible. We worship the God that it tells us about. We worship Jesus himself. And as much as I love the Bible, and I do love the Bible, I hope nobody gets this wrong, and I hope nobody leaves thinking that I don't love the Bible, because since I was about 15 years old, I haven't been able to get enough of it. I love it so much. I get up every day, and if I can carve out even just a few minutes, I sit down and I go, God, what do you want to say to me through your word today? I love it. It is alive and it is active. And I believe God wants to speak to us through it. I think he wants to encourage you and support you and, and motivate you. I think he wants to teach you and, and form you. Will there be conviction and, and, and maybe a feeling of guilt sometimes? Yes, there will. But God is doing that for your good. And when you, when you read that and you hear that through there, you're also reminded that God goes, don't forget that I already paid the penalty on your behalf, so you don't have to pay the penalty. You're forgiven. Your sins have been separated from you as far as the east is from the west. It is so good. But I do not worship the Bible. I worship the Jesus that it reveals to me. And we are building our lives not on the foundation of inerrancy. We are building our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And he is the one that we can worship together in unity, despite differences of opinion around what might be contextual and what might be continual. And so if I could get you to do anything today, I hope that you will live in the word of God. But I hope that you will leave room for your brothers and sisters in Christ who might disagree with you, knowing that that's okay. That it's okay for us to wrestle with theology as long as we all are on the same page that the one we're building our life on 
is Jesus. I want to invite the band to come back out and to close us with a song that just articulates exactly that. That it's Jesus that we're building our lives on. This is kind of a classic song we've sung around here for a long time, but I think it just articulates so perfectly what we're talking about. I want us to close with this. But before they lead us in this song, would you just bow your heads and pray with me? God, we are so grateful for the Bible today. We're so grateful for the way that you speak into our lives through it. But Lord, may we never mistake the differences of opinion that exist around how some people interpret it. Would we never mistake that for our faith? Because ultimately, our faith is not in the Bible. Our faith is in you. And so, God, would you help us to build our lives on you? Would you help us to keep the most important things front and center? Would you speak to us through your word? Or would you help us to build our lives on your son? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody who agreed with this prayer said, amen.